Okay, as we file back in here, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. My name is Tony Daniel. I'm the uh, Director of Development here at Spirit Rock. Um, and a couple of hours ago, I was sitting in my office and I found out that Jacques was going to be doing Monday night. And I said, oh my God, if Jacques is doing Monday night, I've got to introduce him. So the program director was like, why? And I said, well, I love Jacques. And she said, well, what are you going to say? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> and I still don't. But um, we are profoundly honored to have Jacques here tonight. And we are lucky to be in his presence. This is a true change maker in our society. Jacques took me to San Quentin, and I, the day I went there, I had been a dedicated practitioner for a decade, and it was the first time I ever saw the real fruits of this practice. And it was a transformative day in my life, and I just want to share with you how important what he does and has done really is. Just a quick story. You go into San Quentin, you go across the yard, you've got the guards with high-powered rifles above you, <clears throat> you've got the inmates in their own groups, separated by color, and you got to walk right through, through them all to get where Jacques' work is. And he's like, it's like Santa Claus coming to town. It's, hey, I mean, it's like these guys just transform. I mean, they're giving me the dirtiest looks you could imagine. They love this guy. He transcends these groups. We go in to sit. Some of the men there are there for life. Some are getting out soon. But all of them have been impacted by this practice of insight meditation. And I was speaking to one fellow, and this... Just a few weeks before, someone had tried to stab him in the eye with a fork. They didn't succeed. The code of the prison was, at that point, he needed to kill that other person. Now, because of what he had learned through IPP, he made the decision to not react. But by doing so, he put his own life at risk. Now, I don't know about you, but I get excited about my practice when I don't get mad in a traffic jam. <laughs> I mean, come on, let's, let's admit it, you know? But this was, I mean, this was putting these precepts, these practices, and this path to the test in a life or death situation, and they're doing it every day. So, I'm the person who does the fundraising for Spirit Rock. It's tough right now. It's, it's all I do is fundraise for Spirit Rock. But I'm here to tell you, if you have two wooden nickels to rub together, you should give it to IPP. Anyway, it's a pleasure to introduce Jacques. Thank you so much. So thanks for having us here. And when I'm saying us, uh, I will be joined somewhat later in this talk by uh, 
three uh, men that I've worked with and that have worked with me. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. Um, and uh, um, we'll be answering some of your questions and answers. We'll do a little bit of a talk. Uh, Delhi, say something, and then um, we'll be happy to answer some questions. So um, this is kind of a, a momentous moment for me to be sitting in this chair for years. I sat where you sat. And um, um, when Jack moved to the Bay Area, I lived a block away from him. And I heard, oh, you know, there's going to be some meditation somewhere in the living room. So I thought, great, that would be in the neighborhood. I'll, I'll, I'll go there. And that was Jack. And there were 12 people. And the rest is history, right? And uh, about 15 years ago, uh, Jack, who I consider my teacher, made an announcement on a, on a Monday night much like this to see if people were interested in doing something for the prisons in the Bay Area. So a good many of us responded. And to make a long story short, um, I was the one who stuck with it. And... Uh, um, I really wanted uh, to get into San Quentin, figuring, you know, somewhere in between these two malls, there's that building to the left. You know, we were shopping, you know, for years. But what's happening there? And there's five and a half thousand people living there. So I want to get in. And in, in those days, it was about as hard to get in as it is to get out. But... Uh, I managed with some, with some uh, luck and uh, really got an education quite quickly as to uh, what was going on there, the amount of injustice, the amount of racism, the amount of um, you know, punishment and no programming. For 30 years, the uh, mission statement of the Department of Corrections was, can you hear me, by the way? Is it good? Good. A little closer to the mic. Yeah. Good thing I am. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the mission statement of the Department of Corrections was to do punishment only for 30 years. And so our mission statement was to change theirs and to add rehabilitation. The mission, the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Uh, that has happened, and, and it's fair to say that we were part of making that happen. Um, then as of last January, uh, the first cut was made in the little smattering of programs that there is in GED, uh, addiction recovery, and vocational services. We used to have 40, when I say we, the state paid for 40 teachers. There's four left. And this has happened across the other 33 prisons. We have about a quarter million people in prisons and jails in this state. We spend over $10 billion, which is more than higher education. It has a 70% failure rate, meaning in within 18 months, 70% is back in prison. It has a lot to do with the parole system. And there's a number of intricacies there we aren't able to get into tonight. Um, 
But anyway, quite an awakening. And, and around that time, I, I had a dream when I started working there. And I'm not one of these guys that have dreams that, uh, you know, have revealing visions, but, but I had one. And in, a, in the dream, I was dreaming of a buffalo, kind of a mighty bull buffalo that was pawing the earth with its front hooves. And he was on a prairie that was eerie and, and isolated and empty. And then he would change direction and go to all four directions and repeat that. And it was uh, alone and sort of lost. And this would repeat and repeat and repeat until I, you know, I had to sit up and wake up and ask myself, well, what, what is being said? What, what is this? And I sat with it for a little bit, and it came to me that uh, the herd was gone. This buffalo had no herd. And that, uh, that is what happened, right? We killed the herd in this country. The buffalo was a mighty, mighty herd with you know, millions of animals whose hooves used to drum the membrane of this nation alive with a certain sense of belonging. You know, that was part of the spirit of this country. And, uh, and uh, Bull uh, was looking for it, couldn't find it. And uh, I, I had a strong feeling with that. I, I wept, actually. And I, and I got it that, you know, that is, that is what's going on. This is, in, in a sense, an alienation. Our nation is an alienation. And that we're doing time on not feeling connected. And that uh, the prisons, in some sense, really express the strongest example of that. You know, everything we deny, everything that's our shadow, we put behind these walls, and we don't have to look at it. They're all expressions of something that's going on in this culture. But we pathologize it, individualize it, and put it away in between two malls somewhere. So at that point, I decided, you know, I was going to make this my, I thought just my work life, not my life's work, but I'm not sure at this point. And, um, and uh, another reason for it was that my father was a prisoner uh, in the Second World War. I grew up in Holland, and he spent two years doing forced labor for the Germans. Had a pretty rough time. We could hear him scream in his sleep as, a, as children. And when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, he decided he was going to go back there and find his captors or whoever was surviving and make his peace. And it was a blue-collar neighborhood. He was the milkman, and this was not something you did. But he did it. And came back and, and managed to find these people and made his peace. It's a longer story, but that's the headline of it. And came back a, a changed person. And, and I'm his son. And so um, part of what we do inside, uh, inside Prison Project is we have a restorative justice program that is uh, very inspiringly led by Rochelle Edwards, who lives in this valley. And uh, we bring victims and offenders together for dialogue. Serious crimes, rape, 
murder, kidnap. And it's an incredible uh, healing that often happens. Um, you know, just as you bring in life, you have a bond. It's there when you take it out. And it's not for everybody to engage that, but it is for surprisingly many. And so, you know, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who said, you know, when will our conscience be so tender that uh, we will try to um, restore human misery instead of avenge it? Poignant thought for even the context of the fact that there's a new death row building going up on non-voter approved bonds for about a half billion dollars. It'd be the biggest house of death uh, on the planet. Um, so the Inside Prison Project uh, uh, started out of a call that Jack made here. I didn't know it meant I was going to San Quentin for 14 years, but <laughs> it did. And I'm so grateful. And in a sense, it's like a circle coming around for me to sit here and kind of share with you what was learned and bring some of the men that we've worked with. And, and uh, it's been an incredible path for me. I'm on my knees daily for uh, feeling grateful for what I've learned. Um, so to say a little bit about Inside Prison Project, um, we um, run 18 programs to about 300 men a week and have pretty much done so at that level uh, for a decade. And uh, uh, we've explored working with the experience of insight, obviously in a different way in San Quentin than you would in Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Um, and in many ways, we sort of dropped the whole ideology idea of, of uh, you know, bringing Buddhism to the prisons, or, you know, um, and really started asking what's needed here. And uh, there was, for example, there was no violence prevention program, right? You had five and a half thousand guys in prison. You have no violence prevention program. So we started one. Um, and uh, the four core aspects of the methodology that has grown is uh, uh, emotional literacy, where the men learn to deal with overwhelming emotions and feel them in their bodies and become able to uh, have a response rather than a blind reaction. Excuse me. Uh, another one is the, the victim offender program that I just mentioned. Uh, then there's a violence prevention program that is not really aptly named. It's more, we, we call it GRIP right now, Guiding Rage into Power. Mm. Not the same thing, rage and power, like fear and respect, not the same thing, but often confused. And then the, the last leg, leg on the chair is uh, a somatic piece around meditation and yoga. And we've noticed if the men go through all four, the transformation is, is very, very solid. For example, we have a, a, a piece called Sitting in the Fire, which relates to uh, you know, learning not only to hold your horses and as an impulse control, 
but also to hold yourself dear enough to care enough. Dear enough to care enough. Like you're held in prison. Right? That's the verb. So your container didn't work. And your anguish spilled out. And, you know, since we've already done away with the mental hospitals, you go to prison. And so, you know, what can you do to hold yourself dear enough to care enough, right? And sitting in the fire is about learning to tolerate these difficult emotions and sensations and not react. There's a piece around uh, that which we call the two kinds of pain, where the original pain, for example, you've lost a loved one, um, the idea is to go in through and out. You sit in the fire, you burn clean, and you leave ashes. Sounds good. Not so easily done. You don't do it alone. Not that I've encountered anybody. But it's a possibility. It's, a, it's something you can learn. The, the, uh, the alternative, and this is where sort of karma comes in, is to... Um, enter secondary pain, karmic pain, which is uh, caused by avoiding feeling the first pain, the original kind of pain. Because in the process of avoiding that original pain, you enter a number of other unskillful acts. And you can spend a lifetime that way. And when you come around, you know, the, the pain of that lost loved one, as an example, is still there to deal with, right? It's not, it hasn't gone anywhere. Conversely, however, if you learn how to sit in the fire and, and you know, deal with the conditioned tendencies, in, in Buddhism you call them klaishas, um, the direction changes and you begin to help people you've never met and never seen. And, uh, and you're very move of tending to yourself that way uh, turns you into uh, a change agent, a person of service. And the, the core mantra of sitting in the fire as we practice it is that the cause and the origin of this feeling, whatever it is, you know, this upset, this fear, this anger, lies within me. The core and the origin of this feeling lies within me. And so we have a saying um, where we talk about uh, leaving prison before you get out. And uh, we thought, well, nice, catchy slogan, but uh, what are the criteria? So we, we, we figured this out in my lifers group. I sat for about eight, nine years with a group of 17 lifers. Uh, nine of them are out. Three of them are with us in the room tonight. Um, and we learned a lot together. It's been a remarkable journey. So some of the characteristics uh, were, and I'll, I'll do this briefly, were to uh, understand that this moment is perfect. It's all there is. It's got to be perfect. Right? Or you decide not to trust life. That's another option. But if you decide to trust life, this moment is perfect. You don't have to like it or agree with it. 
but you can embrace it that way. You know, <coughs> see what happens. The second piece of that is to say that every person you meet in every situation you're in is, is your teacher. So that you uh, change your mode of judgment with a mode of learning. And we call it moving from the courtroom to the classroom. And the third one is to say thank you. But up front. Not at the end when you got what you wanted as a result. But up front, so as Brother David Steinelrest puts it, so that what is given can turn into a gift. And what is given is any circumstance, right? That's what it means with a given circumstance. And can you change that into your stance? As, as Viktor Frankl said, um, whom is off-quoted in there, who actually went to San Quentin at some point, talked about the last human freedom, which is that everything can be taken from a man or a woman, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And so that's the contract that we make. We, we all make it. There's a, just a bit of acceleration when you're in San Quentin with that notion. Um, with that lifers group, what has started has been a, a remarkable thing, which is that in many ways it sort of became a clinic where victims came I, I don't, in all kinds of surprising ways. It's not like we had a shingle out. But victims would come that had, you know, people killed and murdered and interact with this group. And often the men would apologize to them, you know, saying, I, I, you know, I know I'm not the one who killed your victim, but I've taken a life and I want to apologize to you. I don't have a chance to talk to my victim. And so uh, some remarkable uh, stories can be told and I, I could fill many an hour with sharing some of these stories. <coughs> uh, just very briefly before I ask my friends to come up here, I was called by uh, the General, General, Attorney General's office if I could interview a, a man on death row because his victim wanted to have a dialogue with him. And I, you know, could I see if that was a good idea and if the guy was ready? So I said, what was the case? Well, it was one of these horrendous cases where a nine-year-old boy was you know, raped, killed, hung, you name it. <coughs> I'll spare you some of the details. Um, and I had a nine-year-old at that time. And I was like, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready for this one. So I talked to the woman. She was a 55-year-old short Latino cashier in a supermarket. And I asked, the obvious questions of why, why do you want to do this? And she said, well, it's not like, you know, I want to forgive the guy, <laughs> but uh, I'm thinking, you know, I want to know what were my son's last words. And she says, uh, I know it might be horrible, but, you know, I'm just imagining it all the time. I can't let go. And I think if I hear it, then maybe, you know, I can find some peace. 
said, okay. So I thought, you know, if, if you at five foot five have all this courage, I got a master mind. <laughs> so I went in and talked to the man, and uh, he wasn't ready. That was obvious. So I had advice against this and uh, called her up and told her, and she wept. And um, I told my lifers group, and we made this um, effigy of the Virgin of Guadalupe and hung prayers on it. And I went to go visit her with this and gave this to her. And she read every prayer, and she hung it on the wall next to a picture of her son. And then we invited her to come and ask all the questions she wanted to ask her offender to these men. And she came and she asked these questions. And they were questions like, what did you do? What did your victim say at the last moment? What did you feel when you did it? And every man answered facts, no decoration, just facts. And it was the first time where I heard Acts, you know, where you wonder how, what people can do to other people and, and see it come out as a healing truth, as a healing bomb. Why? Because the truth of it was stronger than the fact of it. You get that? The fact that this was given from a generosity of spirit made it a healing place for this woman to be. And so uh, I had to like drag her out of there. She just, you know, wanted the men's phone numbers, and she, you know, <laughs> and she just was given something, right? And uh, and so that, that's just one example of, of one of the many stories that um, happens when when there's room for healing instead of punishment. Um, that said, I'd love to uh, ask. Uh, Pat and Philip and Rusty to come sit with me. We can sit on the edge here and share the mic. So I'll ask them to introduce themselves, and then we'll take some of your questions. And I can't tell you the kind of smile I feel curling on my face to be sitting with these guys here, you know, outside, right, instead of inside, and and to be uh, looking in your eyes. So I just want to mark that moment. So, Philip, are you ready? Uh, my name is Philip, and um, first off, I'd just like to thank you all for um, having me here, us here. Um, I'm still uh, moved by Jacques' story about Maria, the lady that came in, because it was just, uh, I mean, just a, such a beautiful experience um, to be a part of this healing process that went both ways. Um, and I think that uh, that's just such an important thing to do, to be able to, for the survivor to be brave enough to um, go through that process and to be 
um, privileged enough to be able to be a part of it because it's, um, uh, as Jacques was saying, a lot of us don't have the chance to talk to our victims. So to be able to be a part of a healing process for someone who's went through such a tragedy is um, a very rewarding feeling and a feeling of um, thank you know the powers that be for being able to pay back in some kind of way uh, for my crime. Um, I shot and killed a man and his name was Charlie and he didn't deserve to die. I wasn't backed in a corner. I had other options and I chose the worst. And so um, I bring him with me when I work with the at-risk youth, when I um, speak to people, when I go through processes, it's in honor of my victim. Um, so being able to be a part of these things with, with these guys that I love with all my heart um, and so many more guys that are still locked up um, and that are doing the work and that are doing it honestly and sincerely and, uh, and helping each other and themselves in, in many ways is um, just uh, something that, you know, I'll never take lightly. So I'm not sh quite sure. I know I want to give plenty of time for question and answer, so I think I'll just leave it at that. Good evening. Um, my name's Russell Tronzo, and I'm, it's an honor to be here um, and share this time and space with you. And I, I really don't know why I'm here. And when I came here and I sat here, um, this evening, I, I really realized that um, I, too, um, murdered an individual, and um, his name was Richard John Hill. And the reason I'm here is to continue to, I want to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry to each and every one of you. I'm sorry to society. I'm sorry to mankind for um, my actions. And this is a chance for me to further make amends mm -hmm. and honor his memory this evening with each and every one of you. Um, Jack said a whole lot tonight and on doing and being. And um, the thing for me, I was a very rageful, angry young man. And... I acted that out, and I went into prison and didn't realize just how angry I was. And for the first nine years, I didn't um, get in touch with that. I thought that in, in despair that this is over, and I acted accordingly. And as you think and believe is what you'll experience and perceive, and until I knew that um, there was much more to that. And coming to the place where realizing that um, that I create my own experience, moment by moment. 
and realizing the work that's going on inside there. I worked with Jacques. I spent 16 years in the same cell, and um, I had what you'd call a transforming moment, um, a moment of clarity, and realizing that I was the captain of my destiny, and what I put out was what I was going to get back. And I learned nothing more than to generate love and compassion and understanding in all that I do and continue to work that out and to serve. And um, Jacques, Jacques really humble. The work that's going on in there is, you know, I stand here as an example um, of men that have changed who they are from a deep, deep inner place. And now they're living that out. And, and there's many of them in there that, that um, are, have been following the same path. And Jack said it really well that they were released long before they ever left prison. And they were. And that realization um, that they're still there. And that's another thing for me that I have to share with all of you that there are men in there that are worthy and that want to come out and do this work and um, and serve. And that's the way to make up for um, what they've done. They can't take it back, but they can live moment by moment with a mindful awareness of what's real. Thank you. Thank you. Just a brief uh, comment on that in terms of justice. Um, Rusty's saying that after having spent 30 years in, these other two gentlemen spent 20 years in, we are not letting, I mean, there's a section of our population, 27,000 big, of lifers in prison, lifers being people with a life sentence, that are classified as the unforgiven. We are not letting these people out, even though they deserve to come out. And so, I uh, just wanted to clarify that. Hi, I'm Pat Mims, and uh, it's really an honor for me to be here, uh, just to bring some clarity to things. I spent 20 years, 64 days, nine and a half hours, and 32 seconds in prison. <laughs> I wasn't counting. I spent that time for the second-degree murder of a man named Kevin Anderson. And he had no right to die. He had no right to be treated the way I treated him. My story's a, a, a story where in prison, uh, I started working on myself. I started learning vocations, and I went to school. I became a plumber, an electrician. I was a certified rape crisis counselor, certified drug and alcohol counselor. Started educating myself, and I thought I was rehabilitated. Anybody looking from the outside in would have thought I was rehabilitated. And then I met Jock. And Jock asked me to join one of his groups. It was a lifer group. 
uh, this group was dealing with emotional literacy. And in that group, I learned that I was far from rehabilitated. All I had done was learn skills that uh, could help me get a job once released. What I learned through IPP was the skills to keep the job once I was released. Uh, my last five years in prison, I wasn't there. And when I say I wasn't there, I was there physically, but emotionally it didn't matter whether I left or whether I spent the rest of my life there. See, I realized that I had co committed a horrendous act and they had sentenced me to 20 to life in prison and that meant I could spend the rest of my life in there. So I had come to a point to where that was okay. However, what was important to me was how I spent those days. And I spent those days trying to better that community inside. And that's what it was about, day after day after day. I was going in front of the Board of Parole hearings, and they were denying me parole, and I had to calm <laughs> these guys down and say, it's going to be okay, because they wanted me out. They wanted me out. Eventually, uh, I was released, and now it's like, yeah, my body's physically free, but the practice goes on. The practice goes on when I got to, I was released with $200 after 20 years, $10 a year, um, and a goodbye. And the practice goes on when I get to a bark machine and I don't know how to put the money in. You see, when I left, there were no DVDs. Cell phones were this big. They were like bricks. <laughs> and I came back to a world to where everything was moving at 100 miles an hour. And that's where the practice goes on. How to sit with that and say, okay, I'm a young man. I just need to take my time and decompress from where I've been and slowly assimilate to where I'm going. And that's where the work is. That's where the true work is. And that's what, what was taught inside. Have I had bumps since I've been here? Yes, and I'm grateful to have them. I'm really grateful to have life as it is on life terms because it could be a lot worse. And I'll leave it. So any, any questions? You know, we're all connected, right? The Buddhist practice states you know, we're interconnected. And prison, of course, is sort of an antithesis to that, right? Everyone is separate from everyone else. And it's possible there's no one in this room who could ever hurt anyone. That's possible. Uh, but I think it is infinitely more likely, uh, given extraordinary circumstances, that we are all capable, uh, as our ancestors were, of violence. 
and I think there's interesting research that uh, it is possible that none of us have any ancestors, uh, that none of us are free of ancestors who have harmed other human beings. So I just feel that we have somehow lost track, you know, of, in a way, who we are as human beings uh, by shutting away people, you know, who are, well, human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's, it's in our violence prevention facilitator program, we're, we're teaching men, among other things, <coughs> to uh, be certified domestic violence facilitators. And one of the gang members in there said, yeah, he said, hurt people, hurt people. Mm-hmm. And then his 260-pound apprentice gang member said, yeah, but healed people heal people. And it just sort of sums it up, you know. I mean, we were at the Bioneers conference, and they were saying, well, how do you guys feel this social justice stuff connects with the environmental justice stuff? And I, I said, well, you know, I said, I'd like to read the book called The Quantum Squat. Right? There's a lot of leapers in the movement, quantum leapers. And... Um, the quantum squad would, you know, is to get to your first biosystem here and understand that, you know, in, if we're going to make it as a species, our next act of evolution is to get out of the us and them, right? Because who is us if not but all humanity and, and who is them if not my own insanity? So, so yes, thank you for, for that comment because... If there's one person in prison, to that extent we're all imprisoned. Equally, if one person is victimized, to that extent we're all victimized. And the painful part is to not know that you don't know that, if that makes any sense. To, you know, to not know what you don't know will hurt you. Right? For me, I had no idea what I was missing, you know, living here in Wonder Bread Land. <coughs> And, and I, you know, my life is so much richer from, you know, having met all the, the different races and classes and kinds of people. And I didn't know I was missing it. Is there an IPP for women? Um, we are now teaching one class in the, the women's prison in Dublin. So it is beginning to happen. We're, we're in a couple of other prisons. And, We've also worked with the State Department in, in uh, Central America a little bit. Could you repeat the question, please? She said, yes, thank you, I will, we'll do that. Uh, she said, is there a, a, an IPP for women? How often would um, the men participate in sitting or getting together in groups? Like how many times a week? Um, it... It, of course, it was completely up to the individual. Um, oh, I'm sorry. How often, how often do the men in prison um, go to these different sittings and groups and circles? Um, uh, for me and for, I know the two guys here with me, um, every day, you know, we had six or seven groups that we were actively involved in on a daily basis. Um, and... Uh, there's just so much power in sitting in a circle with people that are processing and doing their work and uh, being able to do your work in a safe container 
and being able to be a part of somebody else's work in, in that same container. Uh, so it's, it's like an addiction of the very best kind to interact with other people um, in, in celebrating good things as well, but also working on some really heavy-duty, deep um, healing and understanding. Could you say a little bit about how that's not happening in the prison system in general? Oh, sure, yeah. There's 34 prisons now? I thought there was 33. There's 34 prisons in California, and I've been to eight of them uh, throughout my 20 years. And San Quentin is about the only one. There's a couple other prisons that are doing some work. Um, very, very small compared to uh, what's going on at San Quentin. Um, there's dozens of programs. How many? IPP is nine. We have 18 weekly classes. 18. And then, you know, quadruple that by, by the many other programs that are going on. So it's very unbalanced. There's, there's a lot of people that are in prison that don't have the, uh, the um, advantage of being able to be involved in these type of programs, especially the IPP type of programs, because there's just not enough volunteers, not enough people to, um, that have enough time to get around, and no funding, of course, from the state uh, for any of that kind of stuff. So it's definitely completely different from San Quentin than most all of the other prisons. What does it take to get out? Um, for, Can you repeat it? What does it take to get out? I'm going to give it to Pat because he looks like he's ready to roll on that. <laughs> I had one too. The question is, what does it take to get out? You know, that, that's an interesting question because I used to think that it took um, doing everything right. And meaning not getting in trouble, um, doing as much programming as you could, learning as much as you could. And it got to a point to where that didn't matter to get out. Uh, it was just time. And, you know, it, when, when time comes, somebody says, and I don't know where it comes from, that it's time for you to go home. See, I was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison, and I got out in 20 years in 64 days. That's phenomenal. It's rare. And somebody said it was time. You're ready. Go. I'm freeing you. And that's a responsibility with that to, to come out. I'm, I'm carrying a responsibility. And it's like, you know, even when I was in court and I was sentenced to that time, they said, you owe $1,000 restitution. And I said, okay, at that time, well, you'll never get that uh, after they gave me the 20 years. And then I realized that the restitution wasn't about the money that they were charging me. I paid that. The restitution was about how I lived the rest of my life. That's the restitution. So I'm, it's that's a great question. And a number of people have their ideologies on what they think is the best way to manipulate their way out. And I truly believe that it just happens um, when the divine power is ready and says, it's, it's time for you to go. And then back there. <clears throat>
Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Curious too, if anybody wants to speak about um, or have questions about a, a crime that you or a close family member uh, have gone through or, or an act of violence. But not that you have to, but I just want to open that up. Anyone? Please. My question is a question that is how do they determine which prisoners get a chance to join your program? Um, it's it's um, a voluntary act, right? And we have waiting lists uh, on most of the classes. I think the waiting list on the lifers group is is a five year waiting list right now. I want to uh, spread it around. So in the back there. <coughs> I, um, I wanted to thank you so much for your courage and compassion in being here and being teachers for all of us. And um, I was surprised at what came up for me because my brother chose to take his own life and I loved him very dearly. And I've done a lot of work with that, And but I knew the whole time that I had to deal with that he was birth a victim and a murderer. And somehow what you've shared tonight has helped me go further into my healing around that. And so I'm very, very grateful to you all. Yeah. Thank you. I have a uh, friend who is uh, doing uh, 15 to 20, looks more like 20. Um, and I was wondering if you have anything that I can uh, do, you know, to help him through that. If you have any advice or any kind of uh, anything like that. Mm -hmm. He's uh, in the southeast, so there's, you know, we, there's no resources there at all. So <clears throat> I know he's not getting any of, you know, this blessing that's, you know, come through the darkness for you guys. I would encourage him to just reach within himself and 
do some soul searching and do some thinking back to his his history down to the memories as far as they can go. Um, before I got to San Quentin, the flagship of rehabilitation programs, um, I was in prisons where there weren't programs. And uh, that's that's how I kind of got my start is I was actually sitting in, in the hole in solitary confinement. And I just came to a point to realizing, you know, there's not a, a lot of outside resources to deal with this, so what can I do? And I just started, just started doing an inventory of my life and different experiences that happened in my lifetime from as early childhood as I can remember um, all the way up and just um, kind of figuring out, you know, how did that affect me and, and how, did, uh, how did that guide me in the road that I went down? Um, and I think a lot of times when you just bring these things to consciousness, these these um, sometimes heart-wrenching memories and experiences, just bringing them to consciousness and um, and talking into them as your more mature, grown-up self to that little child that didn't understand them is really, really powerful. And that that's kind of where I got my start before I had a chance to get involved in programs. So you can do that on your own. Is there anything I could do to be a resource? I mean, what, what, what would you have wanted inside? Um, I would have wanted to be a San Quentin where there was all the things. But the biggest, the, the gold in, when, you're, when you're doing time is letters. Because a lot of times you can't make calls, and when you can, they're, they're monitored and they're, they're shortened, and they're, you know, they're, uh, a lot of times they're really hard, and they're very expensive for whoever you're calling. Um, letters are gold, you know, just, just keeping in contact through writing is really, really meaningful. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> Hi. Um, in the same way that you guys have done, uh, your time, um, getting out, um, before you've had to serve your life, um, victims also are sentenced to um, 20 to life, maybe life in a lot of cases. And so I'm particularly interested in that aspect of it. Um, my personal experience was that um, my brother um, uh, started injecting my daughter when she was 14 with meth and then um, uh, raped her, molested her, and started prostituting her to his buddies and um, she went through quite a bit after that as did our whole family of course and uh, he went to prison for five years he was supposed to do ten but he got out in five and uh, about two months after he was released she hung herself so um, you know and victim compensation wasn't really there for much they paid for some counseling my brother owes us $160,000 but <laughs> I don't think that uh, as a felon he's going to get a good enough job to to take care of any of that and it wouldn't make any difference and I thought long and hard about uh, tracking him down and kind of um, confronting him uh, about how I felt about what had happened and because of my practice at first I felt like you know there's no point, you know, he's going to have to 
resolve it as, on his own, and I have to do my own practice. And then I got to a point where I felt, you know what, I'm not going to let this guy, he had he turned up to have cancer, and um, my daughter left without me being able to say goodbye to her and my father too. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to let this guy get away without me saying something to him. So I went and I found him, I tracked him down, and um, I was so torn. I mean, there was a really strong part of me that just wanted to say, you know, what happened? You know, how could this have happened? And really open the space for um, some healing to occur. But instead, I mean, I started out on that track, but it quickly turned to me being really, really angry and rageful. And then him turning the tables on me and blaming me for her death. So, um, you know, I'm really sorry about that. I, and in some ways I feel guilty about it. But as a victim, um, uh, you know, it's there, we didn't have that opportunity, I guess. It would have been great to have a facilitator there. Um, Important. Yeah, really important. But um, he was in no way ready to do anything. And um, I guess I have to just keep doing my work in order to forgive myself for not being able to um, be more open. But, you know, also the horrible things he did. I mean, you know, so, you know, I, I've pretty much always been someone who... Um, uh, really empathized with all people who were um, uh, taken advantage of or perhaps um, did more than their time. But there's also a part of me that feels like you guys, you know, got away with something, really. You know, I, I, I appreciate your apologies. I hope you've had a chance to say them directly to the families that you affected. And um, I just encourage you to work on the victim part of it and you know, applaud your practice. I'm, I'm terribly sorry that that's your experience and um, that you have those memories. And, um, and he's still stuck um, right now. Um, I think the thing for, I think both Pat and Philip will agree with me. I think the most powerful thing for us inside was being able to have open dialogue and to have victims come in and sit with us and for us to experience the pain and heartache and suffering that they went through because we share in that experience with them. And it really puts it in, puts us um, more and more mindful as time goes by because I was in there for 30 years and to hear that um, over time, you never forget it, and it really has, um, uh, it just goes out um, to be able to hear um, the one woman that came in and to just hear her pain and to know that, um, to hear her tell us that she healed on some level in coming in there and being able to have a voice for her son and for herself and to be able to hear that, that she felt that she left better was so comforting and reassuring for me to know that, that I could be part of that. Thank you.
Uh, first of all, I'd like to say I'm, I'm terribly sorry for your loss, and thank you so much for, for having the courage to, to speak to us uh, about your loss. Five years, I guess about seven years ago, I wrote a letter to the Anderson family saying I was sorry. And I wrote that letter because I was really sorry. You know, because I understood the nature and magnitude of what I had done. I understood that I took away their son. I took away a brother. I took away an uncle. I took away a future grandfather, you know. Um, and after I wrote the letter and I asked for forgiveness, I realized that I can't hold on the thought of the Anderson family giving me the forgiveness, saying, I forgive you. Because if I held on to that thought, it may never happen. What I could do was all I could do. And then, from then on, that point on, show through my actions how truly sorry I am. It's totally unfortunate that your brother has not come to a place to where he can understand the nature and magnitude of what he's done and how hurt you are behind it. But I want to say sorry for him, to you. Let's just sit with that for a moment, if, if you will, okay? Because our nervous systems are taking this in and trying to uh, process that. And we unfortunately have a penal system that um, doesn't address the wounds, right? We have the courts. They deal with the facts. Do a pretty bad job of it. I mean, I'll say that straight. But who addresses the wounds? Right? Okay, he's in prison. Here you are. Right? That is not where we put our $10 billion. It's madness. And... and um, and I too want to commend you for speaking your pain tonight, and and, and wish for you that, um, you know, you find the path where that can, uh, you know, where some justice can can meet the magnitude of that. Mike is coming. Uh, you kind of, well, first off, um, thank you. I'm grateful for you guys um, being here and also serving as a great reminder um, that people can always add to the world and give to the world and uh, no matter what has happened in the past. Um, but along those lines, as you were mentioning that, uh, I guess for the victim, to ask a question when someone's not ready. I mean, there is, like, you guys are ready for that dialogue, but there's victims that don't have it, and I guess that just brings up uh, uh, anger for me that like, the system doesn't uh, heal and, and allow healing. And uh, as we can see tonight, that, um, as this other lady mentioned, you feel safe 
not only safe, I mean, I feel that you guys are giving to the world, you're giving back, you're, you're adding things, adding. Um, and I guess my question is, is Jacques, I mean, have you, um, has people seen any video of this and shown it to, um, you know, other states or more of California to implement more of these um, programs or, or even get, you know, inspired people to set up something, um, you know, to mm -hmm. run a program like that? And, um, well, a couple, couple things with that. Uh, one is not to be uh, uh, skeptical, uh, but any time when $10 billion goes around, somebody's making a lot of money. And so it's, that, it's not easy for us to amplify what we do. These walls work very well. Uh, but, you know, I've stepped down as the director uh, to uh, begin to do those kinds of things. Um, with these gentlemen, we work in a new program called Inside Out, where we're working with challenged youth in uh, primarily Richmond and, and Oakland to take what was learned on this side of the pipeline and implement it on the other side because this system eats its young, you know, and these are our children, you know, yours and mine. So that's one part. I'm also doing some lobbying in, in Sacramento. I thought I'd never say that. <laughs> but I am. Uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, we are looking in, in, on some innovative ways to get the news out. I'm actually plagued by this idea that won't leave me, which is to make a musical out of this. <laughs> I, I kid you not. Because who wants to see another depressive documentary, right? Good <clears throat> documentary. Yeah. That. Yes. Um, but so there's different ways that uh, I'm, I'm being worked here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. I, I'm looking at the clock. I think we, we'll take a last question there by the pillar. Um, to build on Brian's question, if I could, um, could you talk for a minute about the movement toward restorative justice in the United States as opposed to a punitive justice system? Who are you asking? Um, any of you that want to address the question if, mm -hmm. if there's a movement to change our criminal justice system since no one is addressing the wounds of victims and it does no good and you have these um, recidivism rates that are through the roof. Um, since I've been released, um, I'm actually, you know, People go to school to become doctors, and it takes them so many years. I did so many years in prison to where I feel like I kind of have the doctorate in that. So, that's called a, a PhD in yeah. prison house. Yeah. yeah. So um, I've been I've been called to sit at certain uh, tables in regards to restorative justice in Alameda County. I actually work for an, the oldest rape crisis center in the nation, um, uh, a victim's rights organization called Barrier Women Against Rape. I am um, the sexually exploited minor, commercially sexually exploited children's program coordinator. So I'm the first crisis response to all CSEC and SIM girls. Um, when I'm sitting at these tables, they don't know where I've been. However, they 
see the peace in me and they see the warmth in me and they feel it. And they're moving towards restorative justice. I can say that. And the reason I know this is because uh, being in a victim's rights organization, it's victim-centered, of course, restorative justice and offender-sensitive. What they're doing now is they're trying to find ways to do diversion programs to where they're treating more people, instead of just incarcerating our kids, they're taking our kids and saying, hey, we're going to give you the opportunity to make changes in your life right here. We want to put these people into place to help you and guide you through this. And in that sense, we're going to take away this crime that you've committed at this time. Um, I think that's a positive step because as it's been, um, most counties are lock them up, put them away, and that's our kids that they're doing. Uh, These aren't adults we're talking about. They're breeding our kids for the adult prison system. Uh, They it used to be to where if you got caught for shoplifting, a cop would take you home and say, hey, Miss Jones, I got them. You take care of them. Now they take them to juvenile hall and they put them on probation and they set them up with these guidelines that set them up to fail. And our kids end up going through the system. So um, I've, I've had a firsthand look and I'll say that it, it, it is moving in a direction We need a stronger push, though. We do. And that's why we're here, to get a stronger push for the work that we're doing with these kids, because some are still falling through the cracks. And it's really sad to see uh, a kid who may have had his little bout and could have gotten past it go inside and get stuck in the cycle that perpetuates violence. Uh, so we're coming to a close. If if you uh, want to uh, do something with somebody's knowledge, we encourage you. Um, we're looking for tutors, you know, that we can assign to some of the children we work with. We're obviously looking for financial support. Um, you know, this is not very high on people's uh, totem pole in terms of charities. Uh, because they don't know. Um, we're also, uh, I mean, I just want to say Jack has been really involved. He's been the president of the board and and uh, has gotten other good people involved. And is, we're doing a presentation on November 3 uh, in um, the Golden Gate Club in the Presidio, which is a kind of a fancy place for it. And Jack's going to give the talk. There's also going to be a great presentation from a woman a victim who uh, who we've worked with, and so I want to invite you to that, and uh, talk to us afterwards. Or we're online at insightprisonproject.org, as in having an insight. Yeah, and um, uh, you know, want to encourage you uh, to get involved. It's admittedly a complex issue. Um, but it's more about you than than you may have realized. Uh, hopefully, we've we've uh, uh, made a contribution towards that. So I want to close with uh, saying, uh, reading this quote from you to you from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 
who uh, was a Russian man that spent a lot of time in uh, Siberia. He says, if it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.